Hey everyone, welcome. You are at Foster Source this morning and we are thrilled to have you with us. We are going to be walking through new foster care rules. Um, some have been in effect quite a while and some proposed rules that we'd love to have your feedback on. You can continue to chat amongst yourselves and with us using the chat feature. If you would like to submit a follow-up question, please use the Q&A. We are absolutely thrilled to have Mary Griffin with us from the state. This is kind of a big deal, guys. Like this is having the big cheese with us. So this is it, this is huge. And we are just so grateful to her for being here and walking us through this. We also have Lindsay Gilchrist, leader of um, Champs Colorado. I've asked Lindsay to just pop in quickly before we start and tell us a little bit about why foster parents understanding these rules is, is so important. Lindsay? Thanks, Renee. Um, thanks, everyone who's here. And Mary, always great to see you. Um, as Renee said, I'm Lindsay Gilchrist. I'm the director of Champs Colorado, which is an initiative through Foster Source to strengthen um, the relationship between foster parents and kinship parents in the departments and support and retain better support and retain foster parents across the state. Um, and I am here, I'm also a foster and adoptive parent in Denver County. Um, we adopted our two little ones um, about two years ago and are now providing respite for families. I'm really excited about Foster Source's new respite program. Um, <clears throat> but I wanted to come on just before we jump in, first of all, to thank the, I think Renee said almost 200 people who are on today. It means a lot that you care about the rules in Colorado. It's so important. Um, and I'm so excited that you're here. I think oftentimes, you know, as foster parents, we're in the weeds with kids all day long. And, um, and it's so important that your voice is heard in the rulemaking process because you are in the weeds with kids all day long. And you know how rules and regulations impact your day-to-day -day life as a foster parent and your ability to have as much time as possible to invest in the kids that are in your home and um, and to not have to spend too much time um, managing the system. And so my hope with this is a really great opportunity. Mary provides um, <clears throat> every time the Colorado Department of Human Services has to rewrite rules, Mary leads that process and she has tons of stakeholder um, engagement meetings to get feedback from all, all sorts of people and organizations. And a lot of times those stakeholder meetings are with CPAs and professionals and then we usually get some, some foster parents, but the more foster parents and kinship families that we can get in those stakeholder meetings in venues like this where you can explain the impact of the proposed rule on your life, um, the better. Because obviously we want the rulemaking process to reflect constituent voice, to reflect the, the experiences of the people um, operating in the system. So um, Mary does an amazing job of providing those opportunities and we would just strongly encourage to continue to show up for those opportunities and to give us feedback on ways that we can engage you all in the process. This is, as you will see, can be a pretty tedious process. And Mary, God love her, has to go through line by line and propose this language with stakeholders and have to adjust as people give feedback. But it's really, really important. And, and as you know, you will see today the examples of the direct impact on your on your day-to-day. -day. So 
So excited you all are here, excited to hear from Mary about the, the proposed rules. Again, this goes on all year long. So just be thinking about ways that you can engage um, as you are today. So thank you so much and um, looking forward to the discussion. Awesome, thank you, Lindsay. Um, Anna, can you go ahead and share? We'll start sharing. Listen, guys, we're talking rules, okay? So normally this can be pretty dry. Mary and I are gonna do our best to just keep this fun and exciting. <laughs> Um, so like I said, these are updates, some as, as, as far back as July, Mary will tell us more in, in specifics as we go through. Um, Mary is the program administrator for foster care from, the, from CDHS, Colorado Department of Human Services. Like I said, she's kind of the boss of all of us guys. So Mary, welcome in. And why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself like we see on the screen? I can't get through a session without either being off camera or have muting myself. So anyway, um, good morning, everyone. And thank you so much for um, taking the time out of a Saturday morning um, to, to have a cup of coffee and share breakfast with us. My name is Mary Griffin, and I am with the Colorado Department of Human Services. Um, I've been with the department in this capacity for a long, long, long time. And um, one of the things that I, uh, prior, prior to this, I was a caseworker in a county and, and um, I, uh, with kids um, and, and I had a caseload of kids with developmental disabilities. And so I worked with, I, with foster parents all the time. And I, I still know some of those foster parents from, from back then. And I just, I can't tell you, and I've always believed this, um, that you provide the, some of the most valuable services that any kid uh, that kids and families um, can get in Colorado and I know that at times it doesn't feel like you're being valued at times you're not you feel like you're not being respected but there are probably more of us than not that really truly believe that what you're doing is is wonderful and so let me see I'll get a little bit about myself so I um, have I've worked in two states. I've, um, I worked in Minnesota as a caseworker, and then also um, obviously in, in Colorado. I was with Denver County for a long time before I went to the state. And um, so uh, this, this is um, kind of interesting. I, you, well, and that may not be interesting to you, but um, we have a system that's called county administered state supervised. And so that what that means is all you know, that all that child welfare work is done at the, at the county level and at the state, it's more supervision, we're kind of, it's more oversight. And so when I moved here, people said to me, well, this is this state is so different, and they explained it. Well, the state I moved from also had been a county administered state supervised. So I had no I had no idea what they were talking about. So, anyway, so I've been here quite a while. I have um, three adult children. One in uh, one lives in Arvada. I have uh, another daughter that lives in Wisconsin, and my son is in Michigan. So there's lots of good places to, to visit. I have five grandchildren. Um, two of them are in Arvada um, and three are in Wisconsin. And so there, it's just all a huge range um, as you can, you can tell, but 
uh, I, I think if there's anything you want to ask me, I'm, I'm happy to, to share that information. I, I love what I do. Um, I love uh, working in, in foster care. That's why I've been doing it for so long. And I especially, especially love working with foster parents. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mary. Uh, now, guys, some of these we'll probably be able to breeze through pretty quickly and others, there may be follow-up questions. So let's just dig in and see, see where it goes. Anna, next slide, please. All right. We're going to start in the suitability section. By the way, this is all in, in volume seven. Um, and there, this whole slide deck is already uploaded in the handouts tab of our classroom. So don't worry about feverishly writing things down. This is all uploaded for you already. Additions have been made to the existing smoking rules, folks. Smoking is prohibited in the presence of a child slash youth in placement in foster care home. This includes the use of e-cigarettes, e-cigs, vape pens, e-hokas, e-pipe, tanks, mods, and vapes, 90% of which, I don't know what that is. But Mary, how is this different than it was before? We didn't have all those cigarette types. Okay. Uh, <laughs> no, and actually, you know, if and if I can step back ju just to give everybody some context for these uh, the rules. Yeah. So some of them, some of them were more tweaked, and others we is we added others because we really didn't have a um, we didn't have the the detail we needed. So um, Renee talked earlier about Family First uh, Prevention Services Act and otherwise known as FFPSA or Family First. So I'm gonna call it Family First. So there, there's a lot of things that you'll hear in a couple of weeks about Family First. Mm -hmm. One of the things that came out of the legislation um, from Family First is that Congress directed the um, Administration for Children and Families, known as ACF, to develop national model foster care standards. And that's where a lot of this is coming from. And so what, um, what ACF did, and, and the, re the reason they wanted to, that done is um, just as you know, in our state, things are not always consistent. Um, can you imagine what it's like with 50 states and, and two territories? So what they, what they wanted to do was take, a, they looked at, at uh, rules or stand, foster care rules or standards from all the states. Um, and what they did and what ACF did is they, they came up with common themes and what they really wanted to know, they wanted to come up with common um, themes so that we can, you know, we, and that is the collective we, can assure that um, kids, kids are going to be safe when they're in out-of-home care. And that that um, the caregivers are also supported and trained and provided what they need. So what they, they came up with eight themes. I'm gonna go through these really quickly. Um, and what I'll, if I remember to do this, I will associate which one of those category, categories or factors pertains to this. So the, um, the, eight, the eight themes were foster home eligibility, and that was kind of a bigger one, and it was around threshold requirements, so things like communication and language, um, physical and mental health, and you'll see some things with that, background checks, and um, home studies. And so the good thing with Colorado, it may not seem so with the rules, is that in the, in the scheme of things, we didn't have to change probably as much as some states. Um, and some of our rules, we just 
like I said, we just tweaked them. We had the basics there. We just put mm -hmm. a little more detail in. So one of the other themes is um, foster home health and safety, yeah. foster home capacity. And um, speaking about capacity, you'll remember about, I think it was January of 2019, we um, changed rule to not to comply, but to align with federal uh, recommendations, what uh, federal government said, or what ACF said is, you could have a foster home with six children or youth. And so we changed that rule a couple years ago. So that, that was probably the very first thing that was ever done. Yeah. Um, then we had foster home sleeping arrangements. You will certainly see that. You're, yeah. you're probably familiar with that. Emergency preparedness. Um, fire safety and evacuation plans, transportation training, and foster parent assurances. So, and the assurances is more as helping, making sure that when foster parents come in, just apply, that they know what they're signing up for, because sometimes we know that that doesn't happen. Yeah. So this first Super. rule that, um, but, and, and just to back up a little bit too, we had, um, it, it, in order for the uh, Division of Child Welfare, where I am within CDHS, in order for us to um, develop rules, we have kind of a, an advisory, it's called SUBPAC, and it's, a, um, it's an advisory committee where we need to go forward to them and say, um, we need to change rules or we need to add rule or something. And so they need, then they, if they, they give us permission, then what they do is they s assign a task group. And so we had a task group that um, worked for quite some time on these rules. And it was made up of foster parents, it was made up of CPAs, counties. Um, I think we had HIC healthcare policy and finance there. We had a lot of people there. And so they really went through. Um, we had done a we had done a walkthrough of where we thought we needed to change rules and the, the sub the subcommittees in this task group really did a great job kind of identifying what needed to be changed and making those changes so all right awesome oh and then we had stakeholder meetings um mm -hmm. we had 11 stakeholder meetings about it yeah. but this particular what's new about this rule that renee is just referencing is it adds one piece so if you if you go into volume seven um you're going to see that the kids aren't supposed you're not you know foster parents can or no one can smoke in the car no one can mm -hmm. smoke in um the house and, uh, and all that and that those those were recommended um from acf but we already had those what this one is is it's a little bit broader if you look at, at it it says smoking is prohibited in the presence of children and youth in placement in a foster care home so really what that means is it's some it's it's not uh it's it's kind of a broader area. So for example, let's say you're going to a family reunion or you're going to a picnic or something like that. So if there are people smoking, all of this is just saying is keep the kids away from the smoke. And so, and so there are sometimes like if you're walking downtown and somebody's smoking, I mean, and they're walking by you, there's not a lot you can do about that. But this is just being mindful about keeping kids out of um, the line of smoke and the task group because because smoking has gotten a little more complicated it's not just cigarettes anymore mm -hmm. the task group thought it was really important to be inclusive of a number of types of devices gotcha awesome anna let's move on 
All right. New rules added related to the use of legal and illegal substances. Applicants will not use illegal substances under state law. Will use legal prescription medications as prescribed by a licensed healthcare professional, and will use over-the-counter meds as recommended by the manufacturer or the licensed health professional. The use of legal substances must not inhibit the parent's ability to provide care that is consistent with the need of the youth or the child. That seems pretty straightforward. Yeah, and this this fell under the uh, the physical uh, the the physical health uh, part of the the categories. And and yeah, it I we hope that it was it was fairly clear and and recognize that um you all know this we just needed to have it sure. we needed to have it in rule okay super anna let's move on new rules added related to communication and comprehension foster parent must be able to communicate and read slash comprehend instructions sufficiently to provide care for the child or youth, including the ability to communicate with the GAL and caseworker. An interpreter may be used to assist, a child may not be used to interpret. Right, thank you. And, and this, this fell under the eligibility, threshold eligibility. And we also, um, and, and you all are aware too, that, that we really need to um, expand the diversity of our care of caregivers, and we really wanted to be clear um, that 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 folks needed to be able to to um, speak and or communicate and read at, at a, in a way that um, that folks can can work together. But we do not want to exclude. We don't want to exclude um, individuals. For sure, for sure. Awesome. All right. Let's move on, Anna. Health history assessment. This is a new subsection. All household members must disclose current and past mental health, physical health, substance use, substance abuse, and treatment information. How is this different, Mary? I thought I had to do that way back when. Well, um, what's actually probably where most people will um, experience this, this communication is during the, the home study process, but it wasn't written anywhere. And this is one of those those, um, those factors that in, in uh, the family first or in the model standards actually. And it was, there, and it was around the mental health um, and health. And just so that applicants understand that when they're coming forward, they need to be, they need to be able to disclose current and past history. It, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily, you know, looking at the situation and, and um, functioning in that, it doesn't necessarily, it isn't held against them, but folks, we need to know. Right. Folks right. need to. Absolutely. Hey, Mary, we've had a question come in regarding the smoking. What about teens in care who hang out with friends who are smoking around them? Can you want to comment on that? Wow, that's a that's a. Would hate to tell her she can't hang out with her friends. That makes sense. You know, um, here's here's my question, and I think you know what. I think this is something, you know, how we get into individualized case planning. And I'm wondering, yes. this is one of those situations. And I bet you've already done it. I bet you've already had the conversation with the caseworker about, we know this is happening. Um, and, and I, I think that that's probably, that may be the best way or an appropriate way um, to, to work with this youth around it. And, and there's also that, that element of, 
having the discussions about the impacts of, of smoking and secondhand smoke and sure. the, the impact on, on our health. So um, I, I don't know if that helps, but this may be yeah. something that's, uh, it, it's very individualized. Um, people are saying, what about teens in care who smoke? So that, you know, that's been, um, actually that came up a number of years ago. Um, but the, well, the bottom line is, is there's um, a minimum age for smoking. And so there probably needs to be that discussion with, the, with again, um, in, in case planning with the GAL and the caseworker about this is what's happening. Clearly that child or youth cannot smoke in the home. Mm-hmm. And if they're underage, um, there needs to be that discussion because it, yeah. it doesn't align with the law. Sounds good. And again, getting back into that discussion about the impact of smoking on themselves and others. Someone said, who's responsible for having that discussion, the foster parent or the caseworker? Probably both, actually. Yes, because I, um, my hope is that you're working as a team. And it's, it, I also would add the, the GAL on there, too. Yeah. For sure. um, because they're part of the team, the CASA, if some, not everybody has a CASA, but um, I mean, this is, this is a great topic um, to have that team discussion on about the, sure. and, and, and with the youth, it, perhaps even in a, if you're involved in family engagement meetings. Yeah. Regarding interpretation, will counties or CPAs provide a translator or is the foster parent responsible to pay for and provide a translator? We, you know what, we left that open because we can't really say who has to pay for it. It may depend on the situation. It okay. could be, for example, it could be um, in some cases, it might be another family member, you know, okay. somebody that you know that they're going to be, that they're going to be sharing the information correctly. It just uh, can't be the child. That's a discussion that you, that they would have with the, the county in terms of how are we going to do this? Okay. Because again, we want, di- we want a diverse pop, uh, population of uh, caregivers. Absolutely. All right, super. Uh, let's move on. Physical, now this goes into the safe foster home. This section now clarifies that there must be an operating kitchen and bathroom. I don't think that'll surprise anybody. Like Mary said, some of these we just have to have down in in rule. Um, New rules were added regarding swimming pools, in ground, above ground and on ground, hot tubs and spas and kids wading pools regarding use and supervision. Number one, hot tubs and spas may not exceed a temp of 104 when children are using it and length of time in the hot tub should not exceed the manufacturer's recommendations. It must be covered and locked when not in use and regarding wading and baby pools must be shallower than two feet. They must be emptied after each use, the waiting in the baby, pool, baby pools, and obviously children shall be supervised at all times. And, and so this, this particular rule set was one that we just, we had to really put in a lot of language because it was really, it was really out of compliance with um, the recommendations. Uh, of the National Model Foster Care Standards. Um, really, the what we had before for a rule said, and, and really, I, I think that um, it, it just made, it made liability an issue for foster parents, counties, CPA, whoever the certifying authority was, because it re, what it said is um, essentially that um, the, the the foster or the care, the caseworker, whoever was assessing it just needed to assess it for safety. There was 
nothing. It was like one sentence long. And so what um, I, I would like to talk a little bit about the weighting, the, the baby pools. So when, um, when the national model standards first were coming out, they came out with recommendations. It just like we're doing here and asking for stakeholder feedback. States got, there was this, um, what, what you're not seeing on here, but you see it in rule, is that um, if you've got those large, if you've got a pool, and whether it's on ground, in ground, above ground, if, um, if, if you're not going to empty it after every use, it has to have a water filtration system. So folks, got, um, apparently there were a lot of questions about, well, what about those, they called them kitty pools, but you know which pools I'm talking about, those round ones. Yeah. And so the um, ACF was clear to say, no, we're not talking about those. And so we actually didn't put anything in rule. However, as we were going through the process of um, stakeholder feedback, the folks asked us to put something in there. And so we, we, we crafted the language right there about the baby pool or the, the little pools so that people understood it. But, and, and that's why it says um, being emptied after every use. That's what the, the context is okay. uh, in comparison to the bigger ones. And then the other thing um, that I wanted to say too is that in the, the swimming pools, Yes. Um, at first, we had we had it was awful. It was this long, 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 long thing, um, kind of taken off the um, National uh, Consumer Safety Commission, and we skinned it down to say your your pools need to be in compliance with the National Consumer Safety Commission. So. It's the responsibility if you're going to have a pool to, to go online and take a look at that. And um, it would be the responsibility of this, your certifying agency to also see those standards to make sure that they're met. Okay. Someone's asking, are there age ranges defined for any of these rules? No. And uh, you know what? I'll, um, I'll Actually, I'll give you an example. Um, we didn't put, normally when I'm writing rules, if you look in the rules, you'll see child and youth. And when we went to state board, I for the waiting pools, um, I put child in there, and I get I essentially got called out on it, and and then because ultimately you think about it, there may be some youth that have um, physical disabilities that are may sure. use one of those waiting pools. So sure. um, there. There, there isn't an age group, uh, there isn't an age range per se. It's more like, for example, with um, hot tubs and spas, um, that if a, if a child's going to be in there, if, if, they can't, if they can't stand on the bottom of the hot tub and they're above, then somebody needs to be holding them all time, the time. So it's more, it's more about the size or how, you know, the size and their, um, their abilities. And then of course, and one of the things with the swimming pools that I wanna point out too is that, um, you know, the swimming pools need to have a, a barrier fence of some type, a locked barrier fence, and there needs to be safety equipment in there like the, the little, I don't know what you call them, those little pole, those mm -hmm. big long poles and mm -hmm. like this little swimming, the little swimming buoy and all that. Okay, and someone from my team is linking here to the National Consumer Safety Commission um, so that you guys can have a look there. Um, will snap buckles suffice on the hot tub or does it need to be a lock and key? Do you know? Um, it needs to be locked. Locked, okay. Locked, yes. Okay. 
And Elizabeth's got that linked in the chat there for you guys. People are asking anything new on trampolines? No, there isn't. It's still the, the same old, same old that it, um, you know, it needs to be inspected and um, it needs to be approved by the agency. And gotcha. I know that um, statewide, some agencies will um, approve them and some not. The, the one thing I was told about, because uh, I'm, I'm not a trampoline expert at all, um, one of the things that I was told about trampolines, though, is that you really have to look, be very careful about the under, the undersurface of all the springs and all that, because that's where yeah. a lot of the, the damage um, and erosion happens. But no, okay. there's nothing on trampolines. Okay. Do the above ground pools, um, someone says about 36 inches deep, so that's not too deep, have to have a barrier fence also? They do. Because if, okay. if you think about it, 30, it's, somebody can shinny over a 36-inch pool pretty easily. Okay, that makes sense. All right, next slide, please. Fire safety. Updates were made to include requirements for carbon monoxide detectors. Most people probably already have those. And updates were made to include a prominently posted written evacuation plan, which we've always had to have that written plan. So that shouldn't be anything too new for anybody. No, and you know what? It was just it was just word tweaking. Okay. Um, I think before it said above the te didn't it say above the telephone or something right. like that? And it just it, it, that was just one that we just changed the language. We didn't uh, surprisingly have the carbon monoxide um, detectors, but to your point, Renee, most people would have them if you have a new home, if you bought a home, um, you would have to have them. That's been in, that's been in law for a while, state law. Okay, sounds good. Thank you. Next. All right, so significant changes to safe sleep. We've got four slides regarding sleep. So we're gonna go through all of this. Um, new rule updates made to the entire safe sleep and co-sleeping section. Updates were made to the following areas. Allowable infant beds. Infants must have a crib or bassinet. Crib up to age one year as set by the Consumer Product Safety Commission. Bassinets allowed up to age set forth by the CPSC. Drop side and stacking cribs are prohibited. Sleep surfaces for infants, no sleeping on any soft surfaces, bouncy seats, car seats, baby swings, and high chairs. Now, Mary, this doesn't mean if our, I mean, if our child falls asleep in the car, that's fine. But once we're home, we shouldn't leave the child there sleeping in their car seat. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And that's true of the bouncy, the bouncy seats. And, and I think really where the, the, um, and this one, I have to tell you, Renee was, was, um, there was a lot of conversation because yeah. about, about there's bouncy seats are very different. There's different models. There are some that are therapeutic and, um, and so we had a lot of conversation on this. And I think the key point with, um, any of these, these surfaces is that if a baby, if someone's fallen asleep, get them, get them to to their bed as soon as possible. Um, you know, if if you're allowing them to sleep, they have to be supervised the whole time, but they cannot it, they cannot sleep overnight. Gotcha. Um, but guys, go ahead and submit any questions. Do you have any questions on any of this? Um, let's go ahead and go on to the next one and see if any questions come in. Foster parents sleeping in chairs, couches, etc. with infants. Caregivers must not fall asleep while holding the baby. 
This includes couches or recliners. Bedding, there can be no soft items of any kind in the crib, mesh liners, blankets, bibs, cloth diapers, stuffies, etc. I have to say when I initially saw this, I was like, oh my gosh, I slept all the time on the couch holding our little guy when he first came to us. And I mentioned it to someone and she said, oh, I've worked in an ER. That is so dangerous. That child can twist and fall and you, you really should try not to fall asleep while holding the child. Yes. And um, so this whole section, we didn't have anything on safe sleep, not, not nothing. And um, so in the, the federal recommendations, they were they did, uh, you know, theirs was a, a, it was safety driven way and, and prevention driven. And to, to Renee's point, there's that there um, there's data out there about the strength, the number of strangulations and suffocations that have occurred that that have yeah. or do occur um in you know in general and it can, it can be um you know if somebody's sleeping in the same bed if you're sleeping on a couch you know in, in the chair the strangulation might be a possibility and 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 i agree with you um it it, it, it really gets you thinking yeah it's yeah it's it's hard but i i, I completely understand. Um, we've got a couple questions coming in here. Can a doctor's note override the bouncy seat? If it's a therapeutic chair, the baby has colic and the doc it's doctor recommended basically. Is that going to be kind of a case by case thing with your caseworker? It, it is. And you know, and I, it's in, and I didn't mention this when I was talking about all the different kinds of bouncy seats there we had, um, we had, there were some foster parents, for example, that, that um, foster children that have been substance exposed. Mm -hmm. And so they have the sleeping difficulties and, and they talked about these therapeutic chair or the therapeutic kind of bouncies in that. Um, and, and did say though, that they, you know, it, it helps soothe the babies. Certainly they don't let them sleep all, all night and that, but sure. so it, I think just, um, to, it would be it would be perfectly fine to get a pediatrician's um, comment about you know the use of that therapeutic seat uh, or or bouncy or chair. Okay, um, someone says, at what age should we stop using bassinets once they stop start rolling over? You know what? This is where you need to go. If you go back that a couple slides there, you really need to look at the recommendation. Mm -hmm. um, from that manufacturer, because most bassinets um, are are actually more weight driven, I, I believe, than age. So if okay, in all of these, take a look at the the equipment you're using and what the recommendation is from that manufacturer. Okay, our therapist specifically re recommended a quote unquote lovey that we use for security to sleep with. Again, I would say. Look, discuss with your caseworker likely. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I think I know what you mean by, by like, like a stuffy stuff or yeah. maybe one and of those little the, blankets with the little, like the little head in the blanket. Yeah. Yeah. And well, and it, and I think it, it depends on how old the baby is um, because, right. It, and, and that, that would be, I think that would be important to be talking with the, the caseworker and certainly the pediatrician about, the um any safety issues okay if a baby falls asleep in the bouncy seat do we wake them up and move them 
to the bassinet, bassinet or crib, or can they take a nap there? You know what? Um, I, you know, I would I would leave that to you. Certainly not overnight. If it's if it's a short period of time, um, you know, use your your use your parental judgment. They said obviously not overnight, but is an hour or two okay? You know, and it depends on the baby. So, uh, and I know you all are going to know what I'm talking about. You know how like when a baby is first falling asleep, they're kind of drowsy, mm -hmm. and you probably at that point in time could put them in a crib um, without them waking up. I, I, but I, I get a point if a baby's in a really hard sleep, that might be more, it might be more difficult and the baby would wake up and might be more tired. And I would just say, use your judgment. Okay. You know, and then also, again, it does the, the, the manufacturer have any recommendations about that. Okay. That's what I'm hearing as a theme here is you really have to check with the, the manufacturer of whatever piece of equipment you're using. Um, someone says regarding, what do you mean by the mesh liners, the mesh liners that surround the bars in the crib? I'm guessing you mean like those padded things that yeah, like a padded, padded border thing. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting is it was one of the foster parents that asked us to put that in because yes, it does go around. Theoretically it's, it's keeps the, the head, but although the head shouldn't be able to fit through there, but it can end up, they can end up with some suffocation with suffocation. And so that was, that was actually one of the foster parents who said, please put that in there. And if you look, you can look it up online. Cause when actually, to be honest with you, when she was talking about it, I, I ended up Googling it cause I wasn't exactly sure what she meant. And then I could see how you could end up with some kind of an injury. All right, and they're actually intended, they're, they're uh, apparently intended for safety, but there's unintended consequences. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sleep positioning. Babies must sleep on their backs unless a licensed health professional has given written instructions for a different position. Crib safety, no more than two adult fingers of space between the mattress and the side of the crib. Um. Mary, someone says, why did play pens get removed from the approved list? There was never, uh, there, from what approved, from what approved list? Do you mean the, the list, that, the, the uh, devices that? Well, they weren't included earlier when we talked about cribs or bassinets. And why? Well, so you would have to look at, are you talking about the pack in place? Yes. Someone says to sleep in regarding pack in place. Yes. Okay, so um, we specifically, actually we had it in there and we know that a lot of folks use them. And so this is where, again, and I, it, it's the mantra, looking at what the manufacturer says is important because if you think about pack and plays, how many years have we had them? And, and I think the models have changed. And so you really need to be paying attention to the model you're using you know, is how, how, if it's 10 years old, um, you, you may see, you may want to take a look and see what they say about the, the sleeping part of it. It, it, again, it's just, um, being safe that way. We did take the pack and place out because we know that, um, you know, many people use them. Okay. But follow the manufacturer's recommendations. Okay. What about the padded covers for the top of the crib? Somebody says to prevent them from chewing on the crib. Oh, you know, um, 
I I don't know that I'm familiar with that, but if what would that might be viewed as? So are you saying it goes on top of? On top yeah, of it? it goes on just the top of the the top railing there, and, so they don't chew a, the wood or whatever. Oh, it's not across. It's across just the panel, the top bar of the crib. You know, what? I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to look at that because so part of me, um, if 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 it's you're talking about something that goes across the entire top of the, like is like a a canopy. That no, no, be, no. It just goes on the railing. On the railings. Yeah. Look at the. You know what? If they're recommended, look at the manufacturer's recommendations. So it's just a. It's just like a rubbery thing that you put along the. Exactly. Yeah. So that if they chew on it, they don't chew into the wood. Yeah. Yeah, we didn't cover that. Interesting, right? We all just yeah. chewed the wood back in the day. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, if you think about it, though, uh, really the emphasis here is on infants, right? Mm -hmm. And so infants, we're probably not going to worry about them chewing on wood. Well, uh, true. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it's when they're older and standing in the crib. That's when. Yeah. Yeah. Someone says, I didn't even know that existed, right? Yeah. Um, okay, let's move on. Last slide regarding safe sleep. Swaddling and swaddling training. Um, child welfare training system, safe sleep web-based training. Prior to being placed with an infant, you are required to complete this course if you want to swaddle your child. The CWTS that stands for Child Welfare Training System offers this online course. There's the link with someone from my team can put in the chat. You can create an account under foster care. This link is also already linked in the handouts tab of our classroom. It will take you directly to the safe sleep class that covers swaddling. Any comments and, um, there, Mary? Pardon me. Yeah, I, I what I wanted to say is um, I don't know. Uh, everyone gets kind of gets their training from different places. And so if you've gotten your training through the state core, you would have um, you would have gone through the safe sleep web based training. Now, this was just added in, I want to say, June. So, um, and it really is only about, it's about three, two or three slides, um, okay. doing it, doing not only the, the, the demo, the visual demo, but then mm -hmm. there's also a video and, um, and it, it doesn't take very long at all. I, there's also a, a, a piece in the role that says, you know, that also gives the authority to the certifying agency to ask them to, to get the training more often, but um, at least this, this first time. Yeah. Can the and, CPA and offer the training? Someone says their CPA offered it. And does that count or do they need to go back and take the CWTS? Um, they, you know what, the CPA should probably talk to their licensing specialist because okay. again, this rule, this rule didn't go into effect until July. So if that training was done before July, they may, they may accept it. We just wanted to make sure that there was some kind of a standardized training out there um, for folks. Again, it's a, it's a, a very brief one. If mm -hmm. someone, if a CPA or a county has brought someone in to, to um, to show swaddling because swaddling, people swaddle different ways and it really is depending on what it is that that baby wants and what that baby is tolerating. So um, if you're, if certifying agencies add to it, that's great. 
Okay, that's helpful. Thank you, Mary. Someone mentions, which I didn't even think about, what about those sleep sacks that have the swaddle Velcro that you just, you zip them into the sack and then you... Yeah, that's yeah, that's why I was saying swaddling isn't swaddling because so they they you know back in the day people used receiving blankets and sometimes they still do and then they have these larger ones called swaddling blankets and then they have the swaddling oh, sets. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I just want to mention in the chat someone was asking about you know if if there's no padding you know what if they hit their head and. We're lucky to have a foster parent who's a pediatric nurse in there helping with a little bit of information. She says padding should not be in the crib at all. That is an American Academy of Pediatrics recommendation for years. Um, she says just a fitted sheet over the mattress and the child only. She says, I'm a pediatric nurse. We have seen suffocate children suffocate in padding. Yes. And, and you'll actually see in rule, it says no flat sheets. Right, right. So someone says, are those sleep sacks with Velcro okay or not? I would say yes, but you have to take the, that, the class. Yes, yes. Yeah, you would still need to take the class. And it's just, and the, your certifying agencies are going to have to um, make sure that that, you know, they have to abide by the rules too. But yes, those, the um, swallowing uh, sacks are, are, are okay. Awesome. All right, let's move on. All right, so we're gonna spend some time here on this subsection. We've got substitute care, respite care, and alternative care. This is an updated section, includes specific requirements for all three types of breaks and outlines the rules regarding notification, consents for high-risk activities, and alignment with a child or youth's family service plan activities. Foster parents shall provide supervision and care appropriate to each child and youth's age, level of development and ability to accept independence and responsibility. So we're gonna go over what each of these three things means. And we're also gonna go over rules that, are, that apply to all three of them and rules that apply specifically to each one. So I'd say go ahead and move on, Anna, and let's dig in. So these three things listed here, and I'll read them aloud in a second, are relevant for all three types of care, for substitute care, respite care, and alternative care. And then in a second, Mary's gonna tell us what each of those types of care is. But for regardless, for any of those types of care, at least 72 business hours notice must be provided to the caseworker and the GAL. If an emergency or an urgent situation arises, the foster parent or the certifying agency shall provide notice to the caseworker and the GAL as soon as possible. Caregivers may not consent to activities requiring a consent form or safety gear for high-risk activities as defined by the custodial county. Current procedures must be followed by the foster parent to obtain these permissions prior to the activity occurring. Caregivers must ensure that all requirements related to family time, sibling time, treatment for the child or youth placed in foster care, school for the child or youth placed in foster care, and contact between the child and youth and county department caseworker and GAL are met unless other arrangements are agreed upon and consistent with court orders. So regardless of the type of break, you still have to make sure any visits or meetings still occur. You have to be sure that you tell the GAL and the caseworker in plenty of time, and the alternative caregiver cannot do consent forms. Is that is it this one in a nutshell, Mary? 
Um, yes, those those three common areas are are accurate for all three types of care. But just to give you all a little um, background, you know, when you when you open a rule, and then we have stakeholder con, con, um, comment or, or or participation, things get changed, and so um, there there was a there was concern from the um, now I've lost it. Um, Office of the Child's Representative, I can't, OCR, okay. and from the Office of Parent Council, um, or Respondent Parent Council. Par so Respondent that would be the council. bio parents attorney, everyone. Yes. So what their, their concern was is that they wanted to know where the, the kids were. So that um, in the event that, that and it, this was more actually with OCR, the Office of the Child's Rep, um, that if they were gonna be making a visit, they wanted to know that that child was there. And so really that's where that first and third bullet came from, because they wanna they, they want make sure that the, the, the plan that's set out there, that individualized plan that's set out for that child and all their activities is not disrupted if possible. Um, however, there all, you know, there are situations where maybe um, something something would get missed because of of the respite care or the substitute care. Um, and 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 it a lot it allows for that, but it would they just wanted to make sure that um, there was some consistency in that respite, alternative, and substitute care didn't um, impact those. And so that's true of all three. Okay, super. Let's move on. This is the subsection for substitute care. And Mary's going to tell us in just a second what substitute care means. This time increases allowable time from six to eight hours. Add sex offender checks to previous requirements for care lasting more than eight hours or overnight and copies of a substitute care provider's driver's license, insurance, and registration are required if the children or youth, child or youth will be transported. Who does substitute care, Mary? I'm, what is well, substitute care? So, um, yeah, I, and you froze, and I didn't know if that was mine or oh. yours. <laughs> so a substitute care is care that is provided in the foster home. Um, and so it could be, uh, maybe it's a babysitter coming in or, you know, one of the things that came up during or has, had come up during COVID was, oh my gosh, the daycare centers are down. I need to have somebody in the home to take care of that, this child. So the care is provided in the home. And, and um, so the, what the previous rule allowed is that, that there could be up to six hours of care in the home before all those background checks had, had to be done. And then so at, in the, through the process of our stakeholder meetings and what had happened with COVID, they said, you know, it really makes more sense to, to add some time. So we, we all agreed that eight hours was, was great. And so up to eight hours, then all those background checks don't need to be done. We add it and so forth. If care is going to be provided overnight or over eight hours, then there has to be the, you know, the fingerprints, the um, CPR and first aid. We didn't have the sex offender checks in. Remember that got added, oh, probably I want to say three or four years ago and this rule hadn't been changed. So it was just getting that. And then um, folks said, well, if they're going to be, if, if it's an adult or if it's, a, you know, um, 
and they're going to be taking the kids anywhere that we really need to be able to have documentation that they're um, a legal driver. And so that's what that was. Okay. Okay. We'll probably have some questions come in, but for now, we'll just yeah, move forward. Sure. So this is the new subsection for respite care. Updates to respite rules for care in another foster home. So this is when you ask us for a respite request and a family says, I can help, and you drop the child off at another foster family's home. Split rule to include non-emergency respite and emergency respite causing overcapacity. And we'll have Mary tell us a little bit more about that. And it outlines the maximum days that can be used without approvals. So Mary, what is respite care? Yeah, and respite care. And so when I talk to people and they talk, sometimes people think of respite care in that broader look. In, in, in terms of rule, it is exactly what you said, Renee. It is care provided in another foster home. It's not any other type of care. And I, I do just want to um, say that all the respite care and the substitute care were previously in rule and they were in 708.31. And when we decided to add the alternative care, it just made sense that those, that area of, of care where people are were gonna get breaks in some, some sort of way, just be in its own section. So it was easier to find. And so the, what, um, and some of you, I don't know if you've been lucky enough to look at what the old rules looked like for respite care, but somewhere along the line, there were two rules for respite that got smushed together and became so confusing for people um, that we just thought it was important. This, strangely enough, the respite, the substitute care and alternative care was not part of the national standards, but we thought it was important enough to get it through, to get this um, revised as soon as possible, just for clarity. And so uh, the respite rules have been divided into non-emergency and emergency. So for non-emergency respite, at the moment, um, the families can use 60 days a year. However, there's opportunity, you know, sometimes depending on um, the kids that are in care and sometimes the kids want a break or need a break. Um, you may exceed your, maybe you're going to exceed 60 days. And that just is a discuss, that's a discussion with your certifying agency and the caseworker in the GAL. Um, and so there's, there's always that exception. And then um, the, for the, for the, that, that's non-emergency, I'm sorry. And then for emergency, what the rule always said was that if you are going, if, if, a, if kids are placed for emergency um, respite, and you're going to exceed capacity. So if your certificate says you can have four kids, but you've got room for six and, and somebody needs emergency respite, you can do that. And you can do that for seven, um, seven days in a quarter. So it's not that okay. it's, it really is intended for that. And, and I can tell you, there was a there was a situation um, that prompted this rule and that was somebody had an accident. Um, they didn't know that these people, there were two kids, uh, the mother was hospitalized and they, there had to be some place for the kids to go. For and sure. so that's kind of what generated this particular rule. Does it, I don't think it's, I, I don't know that it's used a lot, but um, just, and that's where those timeframes are with. So for example, with uh, non-emergency respite, you actually, could take, you know, sometimes if you, as a foster uh, family or a foster parent, may, let's say your parents um, 
have an illness or, or somebody has an illness in the family and you have to be away from the home and you need respite, you actually can um, have 30 calendar days of respite. Um, and then and then I had mentioned to the, the, the 60 days total, but so that is allowable. And again, um, I don't, it's not used a lot, but sometimes, you know, family emergencies come up sure. and then the emergency, the non-emergency, the emergency respite is it has a different time frame. Okay. And that's, yeah. All right, let's do some questions that have come in. So this is regarding substitute care that we talked about before this. Mm -hmm. Does substitute care include a home health nurse? Does it include a what? A home uh, health nurse. Well, if that, if, are they providing uh, that, the question is, are they providing supervision to the, um, the child in care? Okay. We'll if, see if I we... mean, it wouldn't, if it's a home health nurse, um, well, they, they still would have to have all the, the background checks. Um, if they're there, is that like for overnight? I don't know. We'll or see if we can get it, some more. Yeah. So for yeah. just during the day, the home health nurse would be, I'm, I'm guessing there's a home health nurse and maybe the parent has to run an errand or something. Yeah. Um, well, see back in my, back in my caseworker days with the families that I served with, where the kids had developmental disabilities, there were um, home health nurses that were actually tended to be um, there overnight. Uh, uh, and mm -hmm. so that the, the foster parent could get sleep. Um, and sometimes there were therapists during the day, but that's not the uh, therapist being in there and working, doing PT or OT with the child wouldn't be substitute care per se. Someone says a home health nurse can only watch the patient and not any other siblings. Yeah, and so the point of the the point of this is that they're providing care to the the kids in the home. So if there's only the one child, that's one thing. But yeah. if there are more children, and again, it, it, if you put it in the context, and in this the the original rule was written before I was even here, um, and so the intent of that original one was. A, a lot around babysitting um, mm -hmm. because it, there's an age limit and, and all that in there. And so I don't know that you would, um, a home health, no, actually like a home health nurse would have their, they would have background checks from their agency. I think that they would be um, considered, if they were gonna be overnight, they, they would be exempt from this because they're, because um, the if the foster parent, if it's at night, and the foster parent is sleeping, the, the foster parents in the home. So I, I it don't says know it's a 10 hour day shift. I work okay. her night shift. What say that again? It's a 10 the person hour. said it's a 10 hour day shift. I work her night shift. So I don't know if the foster parent is sleeping during the day while the and if, if he or she is, that's okay because the foster parent is there. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, and that's fine. And you know what? Um, I don't. I don't think that that really isn't that that really isn't the intent of a home health nurse. Uh, to that person's point, it is for that specific child. It's not all the kids in the home. Oh, perfect. So he that, says that answers the question. So yeah, excellent. Okay. Um, someone says, "Is kinship foster care rules different for who can watch the child and for how long?" Um, no, 
No, kinship because kinship foster parents um, meet the same rules as a traditional foster parent. With okay. yeah, I mean there are uh, there are some rules that can be waived, but I don't know that people they aren't. It isn't around the care of the child. Okay. Regarding substitute care, if I have to travel overnight for work as a single foster parent, can I have substitute care overnight in my home with the kids, like a single adult friend who would stay the night and drop them off at daycare or school in the morning? Or does that require respite, a certified foster parent? It's very disruptive for my kids to stay in another home overnight on a school day. Um, yes, you absolutely could. Um, you could use either. Okay. Um, actually, you could use alternative care too. But, but over the eight use, hours, they'd have they'd just have to have all the tests and everything. They they have to have the background checks, the CPR, yeah. and all that. So someone says, do we still need background checks on all babysitters, or only if they are babysitting for over eight hours, or is that agency specific? So again, if you babysitters would fall generally, they. It would fall under substitute care. So if it's longer than eight hours or overnight, they would have to have back background checks. So, oh, and the other the other caveat, I'm sorry, um, this is an important thing, is that if they're going to be providing care over over eight hours, I mean overnight, then they have to be 18 or older because that's okay. where the background that's where the background checks come in. Okay. That's true. Okay. Here's a good question. Do we have to notify caseworker and GAL if we have someone in our home for a few hours watching the child as substitute care? I, that, I guess that would be an agency decision, but I, I, I don't imagine. There's nothing in rule that says you need to do that. My guess is that when you're, when you're reporting to um, your, your agency and you're sending that, you know, that that monthly report in that sure. you're you're saying, well, you know, so and so comes in and provides care from time to time, but um, I don't. There's nothing in rule that says you need to do that. But clearly, um, you know, I would just talk it over with your agency. Okay. So Remember, you your, um, oh, go ahead. Your your humans first, and you do have routines, and you do have obligations, and you do not need to run errands, and so that's what that's what the intent of this is okay someone says their agency requires background checks on all babysitters even for like two hours um and that could be right if an agency requires that yeah um i guess my question would be are um so because in su for substitute care it allows um babysitters from age 14 up depend you know obviously depending on the skills of the babysitter so it would be hard to run a background check, let's say on a 15 year old, because background, you know, there's not anything that's really going to show up in the system. So right. is it, does your agency require that it's someone 18 or older? Is that the situation? That's a good question. While she's answering that, someone else says, are siblings say aged 14 allowed to sit with foster children for a short time? You know, um, it, that, that is an interesting question. Somebody raised it with me recently. We used to have a rule. I don't know where it went, to be honest with you. We had a rule that said um, kids in foster care can't supervise each other. But they're actually, um, I, a county had asked me, and I went through rule, and he, he went through rule. So I, it's something that, um, you you know, obviously, you're looking at the, the age and the develop, uh, de 
developmental level of that child. And, you know, whether or not the other kids are going to, whether that's going to be a good situation. And, and right. in such a, some situations, it may that it's a responsible youth and the other kids respect that youth. And, um, and that's, that definitely would be something that you would run, you would want to talk to your agency and the caseworker about, um, because there isn't anything in rule anymore. So I, I don't okay. know what happened to it. Okay. Someone says our 17 year old often spends eight to 12 hour days with her boyfriend. Do we need to have him and his family background checked? Say that again. The our 17 year old often spends eight to 12 hour days with her boyfriend. Do we need to have him and his family background checked? So that, that brings us to the reasonable and prudent parent standard. And what that standard says um, is that youth in, children and youth in foster care have the right to be able to um, identify activities they want to be involved with, that they can benefit from, um, if it's age and uh, developmentally appropriate. So that that would that and again that's probably something I'm, I'm assuming the caseworker and the agency know about it. That's not that that's like normal adolescence, right? Um, you know, as long as as long as everyone's safe. Okay, awesome. All right, Anna, let's go to the next one. Now we're gonna talk about alternative care, natural support, alternative care in a trusted person's home. So not in your home, but in grandma's or an aunt's or your friend's. There are maximum timeframes. The GAL and the caseworker and the agency must approve if it's longer than 72 hours. Background checks and no fingerprint checks if the person is in has been in the state for five years or longer. Um, background checks and fingerprint checks if in the state less than five years. Do you want to dig into this a little bit for us, Mary? Sure, sure. So alternative care is one that um, we worked really hard um, to get through. This actually came up um, a, a number of years ago, and some of you may have been involved in this, there was a foster parent steering committee that was appointed by the previous director, Reggie Bika, um, under, it was called QUELC, the Child Welfare, um, let me see, Child Welfare Executive Council. They had different, they had different committees, and they, um, they wanted to hear from uh, foster parents about what what was really important, and this is one of the things that they really um, that they really advocated for because they said, you know, we have people that we trust, and and um, this and what they said is, you know, if we don't know a respite care provider, we don't know if they can provide care for the kids, and the kids don't know them, and we want we want them with somebody we know, and it could be somebody they know, it could be somebody you know from church. Um, you know, from, from some kind of a community um, organization and all that. And so this particular one, um, and this just went into effect July, July 1st, and it does. Now, what I want to add in there is that um, with, so alternative care is provided in, in somebody else's home. So, so we've got that whole continuum. We've got substitute care in the foster home, respite care in another foster home, alternative care in someone else's. And so it does allow for um, 70, like 72 consecutive hours, um, and, but no, uh, no more than seven days in a month. However, 
that you know you can get you can get exceptions um, from the caseworker and certifying agency and GAL if it, time is needed longer. And with this one again, um, you know what folks said is I, I I know I know that my mom and my dad don't have a criminal history. I know that you know all those kind of concerns that everyone has, and so. Um, we thought it just it just made sense. Let's let's go with this, and um, because we again, you're not you're not going to place kids, including you know I mean any kids, kids in foster care, in addition to any other kids that are in the home, you're not going to let them go to a home that's unsafe. Uh, I mean we know that, and so that's why we really wanted to um, not have to require the fingerprint checks unless they haven't lived here for five years. So. Probably most of you know that um, if a federal law says if somebody hasn't lived in a state for five years, then you have to do those checks out of state to see if there was any confirmed child abuse or ne neglect. So that's what we used for the threshold. Perfect. Um, and so I think, I'd, um, is there another slide with this next one may complement it? Let me... Yes, yeah. another so one. this is this. Yeah. And this is the really important stuff. So our premise that and um, and again, this was the, the foster parent steering committee. And then this then it moved to this task group that I talked about earlier, the rules task group. Um, if we're, we're making an assumption that if if you're trusting this person, they probably already know the kids. Right. And so this talks about introducing the child and actually substitute care and respite um, recommend that. Uh, but this talks about making sure that they've met. Well, we're, we're gonna assume that you already did meet because they're, they're your parents, they're your friends, they've been around the kids, they've been maybe to the same church, they've been to the same organizations, whatever it is. So um, this one didn't seem like it was gonna be very difficult at all. And then there is a consent form and the consent form is pretty simple. Um, and in that, that there is, um, whoever's gonna be providing this alter, alternative care, knows has a, a knows this child um, knows the likes and dislikes no you knows if, if there's a food allergy of course that would be a safe you know a safety item it's a it's pretty um, straightforward and then it's just signed and then given to the certifying agency um, so that they that they know who your alternative caregiver is and so the um, each person, that's going to be an alternative caregiver would complete one form. Okay. And then, and then just like the, um, just like with with alternative care, if uh, transportation is going to be provided, then um, you know there just need to be evidence that they're a legal driver. Sure. Um, good question came up in the chat. When regarding these cares, um, when does that all go into effect? Is it immediate or for 2022? I have a four-day trip coming up next month. They went into effect till they were effective July 1st. Okay, so these are in effect. They are in effect. So I would encourage you to, um, whatever you're going to do, um, do it now before your trip. I hope before that, that's a, that'll be a nice trip. Oh, perfect. Good question. All right, moving on. Oh, we've made it, guys. We've made it through all the already-in-place rules. 
And now we're going to talk a little bit about some proposed rule changes. And this is where we want some of your feedback. You can give it here. And then when you survey out after class, feel free to add more things there. Or you can always email us and we can forward it on to Mary as well. Mm -hmm. So let's go to the first proposed slide. They we're proposing some additional required training. Um, and it, it's showing here um, if this is required pre-certification or for ongoing, some are both. Um, and some of these are being developed so they won't be ready until later. One is cultural competency trauma-informed care, the importance of the child youth self-esteem, emancipation and independent living, rights of siblings in care, and the health of foster children. Do you want to touch on any of those, Mary? I, I would, and I'd like to put some context to it. Um, so when um, we get impacted with rules, um, if our legislature says we want you to do this, or like with Family First, the uh, Administration for Children and Families said, we'd like you to do this. And so um, when we get to another area of rule, um, oh no, I guess this is gonna cover it here. I, I, there's a couple other ones that I wanna add. So there was a, you'll see that, I guess we don't have the citation in there. So as a result of all the changes that are happening with Family First, and we are trying to develop our continuum, right? Our continuum of care. And so, you know, now we have non-certified non kinship care. We have uh, kinship and tra traditional foster care. We have therapeutic foster care. We have treatment foster care because we're trying to keep kids um, what, what um, I don't think we need Congress to tell us this, but I think we all know that if kids have to be in out of home, that we'd rather have them in a family home, um, in a foster home. And so um, that's part of what's what's happening or, or some of what's happening or the focus of, of family first. However, so in, in planning for family first, there was a, a, a subcommittee that developed a rule is called cultural competency and trauma-informed care. It's in, um, and you all may, you all probably know this, there's something called the general rules for foster care. So that's 7.701 or general of, of child care, 7.701. So any provider in the state of Colorado, whether you are um, whether you're uh, a foster parent, whether you are a group home, whether you're a residential, whether you're a childcare facility, need to follow those rules. So this was put in that rule set. So it impacts everybody. Um, this, our, this particular rule set, uh, this one we're talking about is one that um, we're in process now and it's around county rules for certification and, ado and adoption. And right now we have, I don't know if you've ever seen that long laundry list, there's like 10 or 11 topics that have to be covered in pre-service training and that's changing. Um, and we're having to add to it. So these rules that we are gonna be proposing probably won't go into effect till April or, or May of next year. And so it will coincide with this, uh, the first two trainings, cultural competency and trauma-informed that um, will there, there will be training rolled out 
um, and through the child welfare training system. There are folks working with them now. So you don't have to worry about that right now. I suspect almost uh, every one of you has already had, especially some training in um, trauma-informed care because it's just that's, that's, how, that's how you foster. And so, so those, uh, you know, just be a, have that on your, your radar that probably come April or May next year, you're going to be, uh, that training will be available through CWTS. Now we had, um, we had a law um, that got passed this year. And let me see, it is called, I had to, because sometimes they have long names. It's actually, it's, if you ever, if you want to look it up, you certainly can. It's called House Bill 21-1072. And the actual name of it is Equal Access to Services Related to Out-of-Home Placement. And so really what that, that, that law does um, is as it, it, it says that kids that are in foster care must be provided access to any service that's available through the county or the state, um, you know, obviously if it's appropriate. And that um, they, they have a right to fair and equal access. So, um, and based on them being a, per, a, a human and that they cannot be discriminated against. So um, in that law, and again, I would encourage you to take a look at it. In that law, it talks about um, pre-service content that they, that the um, legislature says we now need to have, we need to make sure are in pre-service and ongoing. So one of those is the importance of child and youth self-esteem. So that's going to be one of those basic topics that has to be in any pre-service. Um, and that, uh, that won't happen, of course, until 2022. The emancipation and independent living is going to be required in ongoing if it's appropriate. So if you're if you're um, fostering kids that are up to 12 years old or you know or so, that's probably not going to be that relevant. And that's why it, the word as appropriate is in there. So, but if you're fostering um, youth that are say even 12 and older, um, it, it it would be um, important to get that training. The rights of siblings in foster care, there was a law that was passed a couple of years ago. There's some rules around that. Essentially, um, in pre-service, there needs to be training around what does that, what are those rights for siblings in, in foster care? And it's not going to be, it's not a surprise to anybody. So what we would do as basic humans, we would try and keep siblings connected in any way that we can. And I mean, that's the gist of it. So that's pre-service and, uh, uh, pre and ongoing train, uh, training. And then um, one of them is the health of children in foster care and the, the other part of it and resources for children in foster care. And that right. has to be in pre and ongoing. So that that's one where we're really wanting to get some feedback on about what would, what should that look like? Um, okay. Especially when you're talking about resources. But the other thing I wanted to add is um, if I'm going to flip back to National Model Foster Care Standards. They too had added some requirements that have, have pretty much been added already into training for pre-service training. And one of them is that there needs to be something about um, laws that impact foster care. And so mm -hmm. the certifying agency can decide on that. Um, another thing that has to be in pre-service is the impact of child abuse 
and neg neglect on child development, very relevant topic. Yes. The impact of childhood trauma, really a relevant topic. And then also Medicaid administration. The Medicaid administration though, does not have to be that the same type that I, there's an eight hour course that childcare providers get. It doesn't have to be that. It really needs to be around just, um, you know, administering medication, understanding what, what the medication is for um, and, and any of the safety um, issues that might be related that you would watch for. Okay, Mary, I fear I typed the house bill wrong. Is it 1071 or 72? 1072. Oh, sorry, everyone. I'm going to type that in again. Yeah. Okay, we have some questions coming in. So let's dig into this a little bit sure. more. Um, first, one that's come in a couple of times is, are, are these going to count towards our 20 hours? Or are these going to be additional required hours? Yes. So just so you know, um, so statute, statute, a federal law trumps all of us. And okay. state law trumps rule. When we write rule, it's based on the legislature saying, you, you need to write rules about this stuff. So the statute says that you need 27 hours of, of pre-service training, right? And that if you're doing traditional foster care, kinship foster care, you need 20 hours of ongoing. If you're a specialized, uh, like treatment and therapeutic or CHIRP, it, there's there's more hours. So yes, this um, what this is good, but this is going to fall on your certifying agency um, to help you with this. So if, for example, all of you, you you're you're already foster parents. I'm thinking, so you've already done your 27. So you're more interested in the ongoing. So um, you know how you have your training development plan that you mm -hmm. work through every year about what you need to do, and then in rule there's that laundry list. So this just get this would get incorporated into that, and so it would be important for your on the ongoing part of it to for you working with your agency to get the training that you need. So uh, and the other thing I would say, um, so for example, the rights of sibling, um, not the sibling, I'm not, I'm sorry. There's a, there's also actually another rule that's not in here. And I don't know that there has to be a class on it, uh, but it needs to be in pre-service and ongoing. Um, and it's really what the whole basis of House Bill 1072 is. And that's the right to fair and equal access to available services, placement, care, treatment, and not being subjected to discrimination. And I think that that's probably could be more of a web-based training or it may just even be handouts to be clear. Um, okay. Are those part of the 20? If, okay, they- Are these today, required again every year or just one and done or every no, few years? If it, if it says ongoing, it's every year except for the emancipation and independent living, it is, it's ongoing if it's relevant to you, to the age group you're caring for. But the other ones, the rights of sibling, the health of foster care, um, those, and actually at some point, the cultural competency and the trauma-informed care will be part of ongoing, part of your 20 hours. Okay. Now, do these, are these specific classes that have to be, for example, fosters, we do a great siblings in care um, class with elevating connections, Stacey Sanders. Mm -hmm. Is that accepted or are there these specific ones developed by the state? 
No, um, that's what we're trying to, to figure out is really what 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 is this going to look like? So the rights of siblings, it would, you know, um, if you're if you compare it to really what the rules and the statutes say, if 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 it falls within there, then that would be acceptable. OK, someone's wondering if the health section will include mental health and is is definitely in favor of learning about mental health. Yeah, and and so we're, that's one that again we're we're kind of trying to figure out what is this going to look like. But yes, it would be it should be. I agree with you. Physical health, mental health, behavioral health, um, and but the part that also has to be added is the resources. And we're um, but yes, it should be all. Okay, I think I understand this person's questions question now, and I think she's asking if caseworkers will have to take some of these classes so that they are better equipped to share, for example, for the siblings in care, they're better equipped to know what resources can support families who would be willing to take a larger sibling group. Oh, yes, the, 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 or the resource information. Yeah. Um, so these particular ones were targeted at targeted towards out-of-home care. Um, and, and actually, I, uh, part, some of the folks that were advocating for this statute were folks that um, um, at the, the, oh, the Child Law Center, and then, you know, you're familiar with foster power, so youth that had been in foster care. So yes, this, yes. Is, this is um, intended, you know, I think, toward this is focused on foster parents. As you know, um, uh, caseworkers must get 40 hours of, of training every year. So if this is, um, you know, actually, I think it would be an interesting question to ask your caseworkers, um, first of all, if, you know, what, if, if they know about this particular law, and what and what the, what resources there are out there? Because yeah. I think you know, and I'll be honest with you, and I think this is true of anything. You know, it really sometimes it depends on the caseworker. Um, so yeah. there, so there are some caseworkers that maybe have um, had worked with a targeted population, and they can just name resources off. And then sometimes, right. sometimes people may not have that that level of um, information. So it's um, so. Is it something that you think that we should be um, letting county departments and well, CPAs and and counties that certify know about this training? Do you think it, okay. it should be known on a larger level though? That that foster parents want to hear more about what resources are out there to support them. Is that what? Add your thoughts in the chat, everyone. That would be super helpful. Um, someone says, as a newer foster parent, when these trainings are added, will they be archived for on-demand viewing to make it more manageable? Our classes are archived and are available on-demand. I'm not sure on CWTS. Do you know, Mary? Um, I well, the the thing with CWTS is there they have um, they have foster parent training now, and so this cultural competency and the trauma informed care will be on CWTS. And um, I, I can check and get back to you, Renee, if, to see if they are going to be more web-based, because if they're web-based, then you could get to them at any point. Okay, 
Um, and then the the other the others are really topics that need to be in pre-service. And so again, the way we're operating right now is counties and CPAs may have their own pre-service, and they as long as they're they're um, providing those the content relevant to this topic, then then they've met their obligation. Gotcha. Okay, someone's asking about, I wonder if this will be incorporated into the annual boot camp training. I think she's probably referring to Denver County. They do a boot camp every every year for all of their foster parents. So I think that'll just depend on if if Denver County inc- decides to include it there or work individually mm-hmm. with families as they're recertifying. Um, someone says, does my spouse also have to take the trainings? Yes, <laughs> right, correct, yes. Yes, yes. So in our state, um, if you're uh, um, if you're operating as a couple, regardless of whether you're married or not, both individuals need to be certified. Therefore, both need to um, maintain the training, the training requirements. Correct. Correct. So lots of yes, 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 is yes for more resources and specific to kin as well would be helpful. Okay. Yeah. Um. Someone says, these all seem very wise, long overdue training requirements. I'm glad they're going into effect. I hope the training material will be provided by the state as well and made available on demand the way safe sleep training is available. Mm -hmm. On CWTS. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, I think that some of these, uh, for example, um, I had, let me see the one, oh, about the rights, the rights of youth in foster care mm-hmm. could easily be a web-based training. And even, um, oh, you know what, the other, the other topic that um, we have to add, but I think most people ha- already have it, and this came out of the National Model Standards, and that is that the importance of visitation and maintaining um, relationships with with siblings and parents. And so some, and even um, one like that could be web-based training, although I think there, it would be very beneficial being a, um, online, or not online, an in-person training. That makes sure. Someone says, especially resources for us in Southern Colorado, who are not able to get up to the metro areas easily when we're pulling together what resources are available. Yes, yeah. Great that, point. Yep. It, does well you know the other thing that i want to um add to is that um you know so you've got all this training that's free through foster source mm-hmm. there's training through um the colorado state foster parent association and then we also um have a contract with um the the foster care academy or not academy yeah uh, john DeGarmo. Yeah, Dr. DeGarmo. I'm sorry, I don't know. I usually operate better on Saturday morning. <laughs> um, but anyway, Foster Care Institute, I'm sorry. So that training is also available to you free and that's all online. Yes. Um, if you need information about that, I can send it to, if you haven't seen it, I can send it to Renee and um, she can make it available. So some of these, um, like the rights of sibling and foster care, that's really kind of specific to Colorado. Um, I yeah. would think most states have it, but that one's more specific to Colorado. But the like, things like the importance of um, self-esteem, that's relevant anytime. 
Absolutely. Um, I link to the CSFPA, Colorado State Foster Parent Association, in the chat. And if someone from my team can link to the Foster Care Institute with Dr. John DeGarmo, then we'll have that linked as well. Um, someone's asking regarding cultural competency, can you elaborate a little bit on what that's intended to cover? Is it um, DEI? Is it race, disability, LGBTQ, that type of thing? I, you know what, I'm not part of that, but if you look in, um, actually I have, I don't have those particular rules up, but um, it, it's either, I believe the cultural competency is 7.701.300. It's, it's already in rule. Um, and let me, this one um, again was really aimed at um, the, our rollout of it, the rollout of uh, Family First that's coming up. So what this says, and it's very broad, it's very broad. And I think, I, I, well, I can tell you that because there's so much, um, so much focus on equity, diversity, and inclusiveness, I know that that's going to be a huge part of it. Um, but so if you look at the rule, it, the rule impacts specialized group facilities, homeless youth shelters, child placement agencies, day treatment centers, foster care homes, and secure residential. And then they talk, and this is really around um, the, this is really around their policies, um, the policies of the agencies that staff members, interns, and foster parents um, have to complete training and all that, and then um, assessments. So I know that's gonna that's going to address. You know, it will be related to EDI, uh, but it's also got to comply with um, policy making in in the different agencies. I, I didn't um, participate in the writing of these two rules, so okay. I don't have uh, a lot of information on on that. But if you look at 7.701.300, and again, again 7.701 are the general rules for childcare that everybody has to participate in. And then 7.701.400 is the trauma-informed care. So you get a sense of it. And that's why um, we put in there that it's slated for April, because even though these two rules went into effect April 1st, the training is just being developed now. So in, in a sense, they're putting, they're being put in abeyance. Um, so until these two trainings are, are developed. Right. So don't, don't worry folks, just talk yeah. to your, talk to your cert worker and your resource person. Um, someone says additional classes that outline the rules and regulations that caseworkers must, must follow and what good upward accountability looks like for foster parents would be helpful. That's good feedback. Okay, would you repeat that one again, Renee? Yeah. And, and also, um, just to ask, uh, get, the, get consensus from you folks. I, would you be willing to let, I, I, don't, I don't need to know names, but as part of the stakeholder part of this, you know, I want to be able to represent what people have said. Would it be all right if Renee gave me just the comments, I don't need names, um, related to this new rule set that we're looking at? I can do that and we will remove names. Um, 
seeing lots of yeses come along. That one said classes that outline the rules and regulations that caseworkers must follow and what good upward accountability looks like for foster parents. Um, that's something we talk about quite a bit and we talked about it. We had an Adams County town hall this past Tuesday with Carrie Daggett and we talked about uh -huh. She talked about, you know, she's absolutely, please feel free to email her. But the first thing she's going to say is, did you talk to your caseworker supervisor? You know what I mean? You kind of have to go up the chain so that everybody's in communication together when problem solving. Um, so great, great question. Mary, there was one question open still from alternative care. Um, is, there, is there a set number of hours after which these things are needed? Like for a kiddo going to alternative care for two hours, do they need background check and consent form? Or if, is that just if it's 72 plus hours? No, no. Background checks for alternative care only. So the, the background checks for alternative care, um, do you mean like the fingerprints? Yeah. Yeah. That and that consent applies, form they have to fill out. Yeah. Well, in the, so the form or the alternative care form, I guess. Well, that's, yeah, you should, you know what, and especially if you're going to use that person more often, because the, you should let your certifying agency know, uh, so you would fill that form out, because you may use them more than once, but just to be clear, that if they have lived here for five years, there's, there's no fingerprints. Gotcha. Um, someone said, what about a training to inform foster parents of their rights in reference to what they're allowed to know, what they're allowed to ask? if they should attend court hearings. I will tell you that we have on demand a panel we did, it was called Ask a Child Welfare Attorney. Um, we had the Rocky Mountain Children's Law Center on there. We had Tim Irie, who was a local private attorney. Um, and we had one more panelist and off the top of my head, I can't remember who that was, maybe a GAL. Um, and they, uh, they answered all of those questions. So if someone could, from my team can find that and link to that in the chat, that would be helpful. And I know CSFPA has done a rights of the foster parent before. Um, so you can find these. So there's actually legislation that was done a couple of years ago when the yes. foster parent steering committee was in place. And I want I think to say it's 181348. No, Is that, are we talking about the same one? No, um, it would be 90. It'd be children's code. I think it's 191103. Um, and because really what that says is that you have, let me see, make sure that that's the one. If it isn't, I will. I'm going to link 1348 from 18. That's the one that says foster parents are able to know reasons for previous disruptions. And a lot of times the caseworker doesn't realize that. And they'll say, I can't tell you it's covered under privacy. It's actually law that foster parents can know reasons for previous disruptions, because that helps us parent, right? Yeah, um, this, oh, let me look in under 19.3, um, because it's, if you look in the children's code, it's under um, confidentiality and information sharing, and it specifically lined out the kind of information that a foster parent, or when they say prospective foster parent, that means someone who, um, is considering taking the placement of this child, the information that they have the right to. So um, if I'm looking through my children's code right now, which is very large, um, and to see if I can, one, oh, maybe it's 101.
Did anyone from my team find ask a child welfare attorney? Uh, Renee, I will send you that statute, but yeah. that, that statute lines out, um, it, it also was the statute that said, or there was a, along with that one was talking about try, making daycare providable or pro, uh, provide, providing daycare um, resources if essentially if it's in the budget. Um, but I will get that because um, there's a, I mean, there's a whole laundry list of things and it also includes school records and. Oh, good. Uh, okay. So I will, I will get that to you. I'm sorry. It's not coming. No, no, to no worries. Let's move to the next slide. We don't have very many left. Um, okay. Supervision and support documentation rule. A face-to-face -face contact shall be made in the foster home with the foster parents at least every month. While the children and youth are in placement, documentation of such contacts shall be entered into CCWIS in the contacts for the provider and the foster children, youth placed in foster care in the foster care home. The purpose of the contact is to provide support and answer questions that the foster parent has about the program, to indicate to the foster parent county department concerns about the operation of home and to observe the child care slash interaction when possible. Wasn't this already happening with a monthly home visit, Mary? Yes, and this all this is, um, and there's another slide that comes with it. Okay. Uh, so this is, so we are, uh, again, I had mentioned we are um, revising, adding, updating, deleting um, parts of the 7.500 series, which is the, Foster, it's the county foster home and um, county adoption services rules. And so there was, there has been uh, a requirement for a long, long, long time um, based on some kind of a, a, it was a newspaper expose about 20 years ago that foster homes need to be um, able to be given the support and supervision that they need to be able to do their job. And so that means that somebody comes into the home uh, you know, the, usually it's the certifying worker. Um, and, and then on the CPA side, I, I think it's there, is it the placement worker or um, it could, but anyway, the case manager. So the, um, that they, they come in, they provide the service, go into the home, talk with the foster parent, get any concerns of the foster parent, share any concerns they have. And what it, what it required is um, that they have, Serve child care. So this isn't like the child welfare visit, as a child, the caseworker visit. This is the certification mm -hmm. work right. coming in to provide. Okay. Yep. And so then if you want to go to the next one, so we've just, so if it's in a, a lower case, that's what's already there. There's been some misinterpretation. And again, this is on the county side. Okay, the county rules. What will happen is on um, the CPA rules in 710, 7.710, those will also get updated so that they mirror each other. Um, Anna, can we so see the next people, one? Yeah, the next one is the important one. And so there's been, there um, has, was some different interpretation of this rule. Um, and so we wanted to make sure that we were clear um, so that we all interpret it the same. And it has to do with, it, most, it mostly has to do with two parent foster families. There was an interpretation um, that, that if there's a two parent foster family, they both must be seen at every, every month in the home. Um, and 
child care observed. And that wasn't really the intent of the rule. So what we're trying, this first one, when you look at A, that's existing language. That, that really didn't change. But B is um, new language that we're adding um, and that we want to be really clear that, um, yes, we want, if, this, if it's a two foster, or two foster parent family, we want them to see both. But there are situations where, for example, um, you know, there's maybe one, one caregiver isn't in the home as often. Maybe they're on the road trucker. They might be in the military, any number of things where it makes it kind of difficult to... Um, to, to, to get both parents in the home at the same time every month. And so that's really what the intent of that one is. Gotcha. Um, okay. And then, and then also to clarify, if, if the kids are at home, great, well, then they can observe the childcare. Um, because, sure. But if there's a visit during the day and you've got little ones at home, preschool, yeah, you can observe that. But if there's older ones, there was this belief that they had to do it this visit when every you know when everybody was there which is you can just like with your schedules you can imagine would be pretty um kind of difficult for sure. um, the certifying worker so that's what these are, are is just to try and clarify that um we want you to see family both parents if possible if you can't you, you just need to document um why, why you can't see that second foster parent so. Someone says, what is CCWIS and how do you enter it? You don't, you don't enter it. That's for the caseworker. Right. And again, these are the county rules. And so you all know the term trails. Um, so the, yeah. the so formal name for trails is the Comprehensive Child Welfare Information System. So. Um, I think we have just a couple more slides, but first someone says, will there be any changes to the adoption process rules after termination? No. Um, and actually, so just to clarify, in this particular section, in this 7.500 section, it's really more around the services that are provided to adoption. The adoption rules are in the child welfare sections. 7.306. And the, um, so I know it gets confusing, but the, the I think what you're talking about would fall into that section. Of, and that that that's not being addressed here. Okay. So, um, can you access trails if you're licensed with an agency instead of a county? The, the agency can access trails. Foster parents cannot access trails. Is that correct? That's true. Yeah, that's okay. true. Anna, do you want to go on? And... Oh, this is this just a little bit more clarification on that? This is just no, and this is one, um, we just revised this rule, um, the rule was talking about an annual supervisory visit, and um, where if, if there were, if the foster parent wasn't in compliance, they had to be given notice of not being in compliance, which didn't make sense. Um, so what, it, what made more sense is that you're, with your certification worker in these monthly sessions um, that at some point in time you're having that discussion about what do you you know what what are, are some of the requirements that you need where are you you know for example the the healthcare evaluation yep. or um, training you know so that when so that you can be certified on time and it doesn't um, expire and so this okay. is really just what the certification workers should be doing. Um, and it's a revision in the language. If you go, I would encourage you all to go into 7.500 in, and you, will, you can kind of look at the difference in the language. Okay, um, go ahead, Anna. 
Okay, visitors. When foster parents have visitors in the home for 14 days or more, they have to be fingerprinted, do all background checks, and give a copy of their health evaluation. That needs to be done within 24 hours, a, a sex offender check and trails check, and within five days, fingerprints. So, so this, um, on the, on the county side, um, we, we are, we want foster care rules for counties and child placement agencies to be the same. I mean, the federal law says they need to be the same. And so on the county side, their foster home, their foster homes get reviewed through ARD. So ARD developed a, an instrument with all the rules and they, they review all this recertifications and certifications. Um, and so a, a couple of years ago, well, it was more than that, it was probably three, four, five years ago, there was a decision made on the, that, um, that there was a concern and there was a concern and I'm not sure where the concern came from that um, there was concern that if that people that were coming in that were visiting for a longer visit, we're not talking about a week long, uh, that were staying for extended periods of time um, that they didn't even they didn't know about. And so there was a um, there was never actually a rule. That's why it's being proposed for rule. Um, there was an interpretation that counties were being held to that with this very stuff. If if um, the when the county learns, you know, from the foster parent that somebody has been there for 14 days or is going to be there longer than 14 days, then they need to do the fingerprints and the background checks and all that. That's what this is all about. Um, the five day fingerprints is similar to what we have for um, emergency placements uh, for in kinship care where the 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 person has five day five calendar days, I believe, five business days to get their fingerprints and no longer than 15 in extreme cases. Okay. So, uh, but anyway, so this is, was our, what, what we needed to do, I guess, to put in or to, to get this into rules so that we're moving away from these interpretations. Um, gotcha. And again, on the CPA side, it's not there yet. Uh, it will be. Okay. But that's what this is all about. This is interesting. Somebody said we had issues with fingerprinting because the adult did not have a driver's license or a valid ID. That's that good to know. That would be true. Yeah, that that's good to true. know. And so, for example, some you will find that sometimes when individuals here are not legally present, if they don't have a, if they haven't gotten a state ID, um, or have, you know, they, they can't get fingerprinted. And so, yes, that, yeah. that is, that's the only way CBI can do finger or not that CBI can take fingerprints. Yeah. So somebody who says we, we sometimes have family visiting from Europe for two to three weeks, then they need to do, they need to in advance, start planning for all of these things. It sounds like. Yeah. And it, yes. And that would make total sense um, to let, to let your certifying agency know um, they wouldn't be able to do the fingerprints until they get here. Um, right. Of course. And um and of course, there would be probably nothing in trails on, which is fine. Um, they would, there would be nothing showing up on sex offender checks or anything like that. But the, and the fingerprints uh, probably would, would obviously come up clean, would, very clear because they haven't lived here, but they'd still need to do it. Yep. Um, they'd, they still need to have the ID or something. Okay, next one, Anna. Okay, 
Safe practitioner, this is regarding the home study, conduct a minimum of one joint interview with a couple, one individual interview with each adult member, and an age or developmentally appropriate interview with all children and youth. For single applicants, a minimum of two separate interviews required. Two of the interviews must be in the home. This again, doesn't sound all too new, Mary. No, um, actually the first parts were, uh, the, the first two uh, bullets are, are current now, what was uh, where we didn't provide clarity on, and this is going to get changed also in the CPA section, is the number of interviews that need to be in the home. And, you know, the whole premise of the, of the home study is to be able to, you know, um, interview folks, um, communicate with folks in the context of their home, get a sense of the environment, get, get in and all that. When you do interviews in public places or you do interviews in offices, you don't get that kind of interaction. You, you're not getting that that vibe of the home. Yeah. So that's why we said at least two have to be in the home. Okay. Um, go ahead, Anna. We're finishing up here, guys. I think the last thing we have to discuss are some proposed immunization rules. Um, before I start going into this, I just want to make a statement that none of this is regarding COVID right now. So there is nothing to be discussed regarding COVID vaccination for foster parents. Is that correct, Mary? Absolutely. Yes, it's absolutely correct. What I want to say is the, the immunizations was part of the national model foster care standards. Um, and actually, it's the, some of the, their recommendations were much stronger than where we're headed. And, um, and initially our rules were uh, looked very different. And so in consultation with our medical director at CDHS, uh, who, is a, who is a doctor, um, that's, we revised this and this is, these immunization rules are focused only on infants six, under the age of six months. And the concern about it is that the, the um, medical director shared is that infants really are just beginning to develop an immune system up, you know, up until age six months. And so they're extremely vulnerable. And two of the, two of the um, diseases, um, vaccine preventable diseases that are most prevalent with little ones is influenza, which by far is the big one, and pertussis. And so that's, um, this, that's with this one, this is just really more, and this is about all household members um, who provide care. Okay. So that, what that, what that means is if you've got, regardless of the age, if you've got multiple providers in your home, you know, if it's even the kids, if they're providing care, they would have to have, the, the kids would have pertussis anyhow as part of their DPT, but yeah. the adults would too. Um, if if you're only going to restrict care to that six month and under to, to like one or two, then those are the people that have to um, have, have, have the vaccinations for again, age, birth through up to six months. All right, so let me just read this so that we've got that all household members of a foster care home which provides care for an infant that is six months of age or younger must have a current pertussis, whooping cough vaccine, and the annual influenza vaccine. The timing of the administration of the influenza vaccine shall be based on the recommendation of the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. A medical exemption exists when a licensed healthcare provider documents that an immunization is contrary to the individual's health. 
Members with such exemptions are prohibited from providing any direct care to infants under the age of six months. Was there a second slide on this? I can't remember, Anna. Is there? No, that's no, it. that this is it. This is, okay. um, I think it's just the two, I think it's just the two slides. Um, but no, it, the whole, the whole gist of it is that the vulnerability of the health of infants under the age of six months. Okay. Someone says regarding flu shots, what about an adopted child in the home that is 14 or older will not get a flu shot? Well, then if they're not going to get a flu shot, then they can't be, they can't provide any they of can't the care. Help care. Yeah. They can't change the <laughs> so, diaper or whatever of the infant. Diapering, feeding, gotcha. and, you know, all of that stuff. Yeah. Okay. Okay. We are up to date on questions that have come in through the Q&A. I think we're close in the chat. Um, I think there might've been one or two more. So let me see if we can just sneak those in here. I know we're at time guys. Appreciate you guys hanging in. Well, technically we started a couple minutes. Later. See, so we're, we're good. <laughs> um, the health evaluation seems a little much. Why is that necessary? I'm not sure oh, what that, where we were talking about that, but go oh, ahead. You know what that, uh, yeah. And that goes back to that when, when you've got visitors that are going to be in there gotcha. 14 days or longer, well, yeah. when you think about it, when you think about it, when you're being, when you're being certified, right, you, um, you and all of your family need to, that you're, you're all going to be providing care, need to provide that health evaluation either, that's either within the year uh, to certification or within 30 days after. And it's really about, um, they're going to be a family, you know, it's that whole thing about they're going to be a family member, um, albeit um, maybe shorter term, that it's having that healthy belt. So it just kind of um, aligns with the other members of the household rules. Yeah. Um, back to the interviews. If you have more than two interviews and you have, you have two in person, can the rest be virtual? Oh, well, not, not anymore. So under, um, and I can send you that, that res, that operation memo. Oh, two um, just have to be in the home. In the home. Yeah. Gotcha. So we, effective July 1st, we said that they can no longer do virtual interviews. Um, you know, and the only, the only exception is if, you know, somebody in the home is, um, is COVID positive or, a health, uh, a medical professional or educational professional or public health said, no, you can't, you can't have contact. Um, we wanted to get back into um, that face-to-face -face and that relationship development that happens. And, yeah. you know, and for, uh, you know, the virtual had to work for a while. Yeah. I gotcha. Okay. Since we're at time, what we're going to do is I'm going to have Anna stop sharing. And then Anna is going to walk all of you through how to get your certificate for today. Um, nice and slow, Anna. Perfect. Perfect. And then if you have time, Mary, there's a couple other questions that came in. Let's see. Okay, so the first thing is our verification code. 
So today the code is rules, R-U-L-E-S, all lowercase. So if you want to jot that down somewhere so that you don't forget it. We're going to put it in the chat right now as well. Okay, so when you logged in this morning, you should have seen a screen that looked like this. Can everyone see my? Yep. My foster yep. screen. Okay, so up at the top, you'll see that you're registered for this class. You'll see under the contents that the webinar has been given a green check mark. So the next thing that you're gonna to wanna to do is put in the verification code, R-U-L-E-S, all in lowercase, submit verification code, and then you'll see your second green check mark. The next step is to fill out our survey. We have 10 questions. We really, really value your feedback on this. Um, not only does this help us improve what we do, um, but we also want to be able to give trainings that meet your needs. Um, if you're new to Foster Source, you can always click the NA new to Foster Source. I'm just gonna go through and answer them. You can always email learning at fostersource.org too if you need help getting through this. I'll put that in the chat. Okay, so once you finish the survey, all right, you'll see that you've completed it and now you have these three green check marks. And then you'll come down to view or print your certificate. And when you click that, it'll open your certificate. If you don't click this, you will not see your certificate under your dashboard transcript. So it's so, so, so important that you see these three or these four green check marks at the end. Um, can you show the handouts tab before you go back to dashboard? And here's our handout. So we have this um, safe sleep training class and the slides from today. And then when you're looking for your certificate, you're gonna come over to dashboard on the side of your screen. Once you click here, it'll take you to your dashboard and you'll see transcript and achievements, click there. And I can see that I have my, or my certificate from this class. I know a lot of people today are watching with someone, either a partner, spouse, friend, if you're watching with someone, it is important to know you need to log in on your own account and get those four check marks so that you have a certificate with your name on it. If you are listening or watching with someone and you haven't emailed us yet, let us know by emailing either learning at FosterSource or you can email me, Anna, at FosterSource to tell us that you're watching with someone so that we can make sure that we've marked you as attended so you can get your certificate for this class. Thank you, Anna. You can stop record or stop sharing now. Class is officially over. I want to, Mary's going to hang on for just a couple of minutes, but for those of you that need to go, I want to thank Mary so, so much. When we know better, we do better. We are so grateful for your time breaking all of this down for us today. Thank you so much for coming, everyone. And I want to thank you for hanging in there because I know there was a lot of information and sometimes it just doesn't make sense why you end up with more and different rules. Right. And, and I 